Our scripture lesson this week comes to us from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. I was looking forward to my first Sunday back in the sanctuary preaching with live people. But we can't always get what we want. And much more importantly, I'm glad that we are able to celebrate that So many people in our community, though we have physical property damages to repair, we have not heard of any loss of life. And I give thanks to God for that. And I look forward to as we continue recovering from Hurricane Sally, as we continue recovering from this age of pandemic where we are learning our new ways of living, that we are still moving towards times where we will all be together in person and where we can all see each other and feel each other's presence in this place. But in the meantime, we're gonna continue worshiping. And this week we are once again worshiping by way of the lectionary. We are not in a series and we won't be for another week or so as we've been through many series throughout the past number of months. But today, once again, we're letting the lectionary drive our scripture readings. And the assigned text from the New Testament this morning is very timely for the world we live in. It is about discovering what is true. And how hard is that particular task during this day and age, right? I mean, figuring out what is true when there's so much information coming our way, it can be difficult. So if you don't mind, I would like to preach from the subject, the present crisis, the present crisis. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Next week when we're all together and we say, and all God's people said, I can't wait to hear that amen. Just kind of ring out through the sanctuary. If I were to ask you, what is the one thing you know, or even the one thing you remember about the election of 1948? what would it be? I mean, you can do a deep dive and discover all sorts of things about that election, but the election as a whole is most remembered not for what happened leading up to it, but what happened the day after it. On November 2nd, 1948, President Harry Truman defeated New York's governor, Thomas Dewey. 
to maintain his office for an additional four years. However, that day, the exit polls of the election and just the general feeling around the country for the weeks leading up to November 2nd was that Dewey would become the new commander-in-chief. The Chicago Tribune was so confident that Dewey had the win in the bag that on the evening of the election, the paper went ahead and printed 150,000 copies of their November 3rd edition with a headline that read, Dewey defeats Truman. But unfortunately for the Tribune, the late closing polls in the Midwest and the Western states ended up shifting the momentum of the race towards Truman, eventually giving him the victory. This blunder by the Chicago Tribune is the perfect antidote for an all too real cliche in the current media culture. Something I'm sure most of you have heard before. It's better to be first than to be right. I mean, doesn't it feel like being first is more important than being right in today's news media? Granted, we don't want to be as wrong as getting the headline of an election wrong. But it sure does seem like we're okay with a few more mishaps with factual correctness. In the age of Twitter and email, in the age of 24-hour news cycles and ever-changing attention spans, the most important thing is to be first on a story, even if it means we get a few of the facts wrong along the way. All of this makes it harder than ever to know who to trust and from where we should search for truth. In addition to news outlets sometimes getting the facts of a story wrong, we also live in a world where different media companies cover the same story from completely different angles. Let's say two different news agencies are covering the story about little Timmy when he fell in the well, in the most memorable plot from the show Lassie. One anchor would tease the upcoming story by looking at the camera and saying, inattentive parents are to blame for child's tragic accident. That story coming up next. While another outlet's anchor would come on the screen and say, Faithful Canine proves once and for all why dogs are man's best friend. The story about why you should adopt a pet coming up next. All of a sudden, a story about a boy falling in the well becomes on one hand an indictment of a certain parenting style and on the other hand, a story celebrating the local animal shelter. It's almost like news has a life of its own, right? But to me, the hardest thing in my mind when we watch the news or anytime we try to learn about what is going on in the world is when multiple places cover the same story the same way, but provide different facts, provide conflicting facts even. Right now, you can go on various online media companies, online websites, and find stories that say why we should play college football this year on the other hand, you can go to other news outlets, other online resources, and read why we should not be playing college football this year. Both articles, both outlets, they will have opinions from medical experts. They will have testimonials from athletes and coaches, and each will make a compelling case using facts that support their agenda, that help them make the case that they want you to lean towards. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm very excited about being able to watch the SEC play football in the next couple of weeks, but it's just amazing to me 
how the same story can have such conflicting opinions about what is right and both be relatively compelling. Has there ever been a time where we had access to so much information, yet we were all led to so many different conclusions? I will say, though, I I do think it's low-hanging fruit to separate out the news agencies from everyone else when it comes to agreeing on what is true and what is not, when it comes to getting the facts right. I mean, their miss rate will be higher because they take a lot more shots. It'd be like saying that Michael Jordan, because he shot 49.7% throughout his career, is a worse basketball player than somebody who has 100% shooting average but only shot one shot. Yeah, his percentage is lower, but he took a lot more chances. News outlets are easy targets to ridicule because they get things wrong from time to time, or they disagree on a part or a whole of a story, but that's what they do. They talk about news all the time. They shoot a lot of shots. But disagreements and getting things wrong, it's not solely confined to the world of journalism. Would you believe me if I told you that the Bible doesn't always agree on facts? None of the resurrection accounts agree on who met the women at the tomb, do they? Mark says that an angel was there Sorry, Matthew says an angel was there. Mark says it was a young man. Luke says it was two young men. And John says it was two angels that all of a sudden became Jesus. In 1 Kings, on the day King Jehoiakim was released from prison, it was the 25th day of the 12th month. But if you turn to Jeremiah, he describes the exact same events, the day King Jehoiakim was released from prison. But he says it was the 27th day of the 12th month. Both can't be right. I mean, you can't have been released from prison twice on the same account. Disagreements on facts is actually not that uncommon between different books of the Bible. And neither were conflicting opinions on truth. People within the Bible are characters. They have different ideas about what certain truths are. I mean, take the Corinthian people, for example. These were the people to whom Paul was addressing in the letter we just read a few moments ago. They could not agree on a lot of things. They also had various sources that they trusted to give them facts, to help them see wisdom so they could decide for themselves what was true and what was not. In fact, the whole reason Paul was writing this letter to begin with is because there were disagreements within the church in court. The leaders of that church wrote to Paul seeking advice, looking for answers. They were trying to discover what was true. And prior to his letter to the Corinthians, Paul, along with Aquila and Priscilla, they founded this church in Corinth somewhere in the 50s CE. Paul's first letter to the church is one of encouragement, one of instruction, teaching them about Christ and trying to help them be the church in spite of his absence. And in spite of the fact that Apollos, their other leader, has left. We learn a lot about the church in Corinth throughout the New Testament, in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans, as well as both of the Corinthian letters. We probably know more about the church in Corinth than any other New Testament church. And this morning, we heard from the very beginning of Paul's first letter to these people. Like many of his letters, there is a prelude of sorts where Paul offers encouragement before he gives instruction. The first couple of chapters are what's on Paul's heart? 
what's on his mind. He's going to answer their questions. He's going to respond to the letters they wrote. But first, he just kind of wants to share a little bit about what he's been thinking. And the biggest thing Paul wants to offer this church in these first couple chapters is an appeal for unity. Paul recognizes that there are divisions within this Corinthian congregation. This church is not united, but it is plagued by factions. Even though this is a new church plant, they've already begun dividing themselves and forming groups within the body. We don't know anything about that, do we? There's never been factions within our church. There's never been divisions within our church. I mean, we, that, this whole thing is probably just isolated to Corinth. None of us can identify with having dealt with feeling like we are part of or that there are groups within a congregation. Right before these verses, though, Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Part of the reason the church is divided is that this church is without any real leadership structure. It's the beginning. It's a new thing. And they don't have the leaders who started it there anymore. And so people are conflicted as to who they should turn to. There are split loyalties among this congregation. Some people consult Paul for advice. Others look to Peter and Cephas. Some follow the leadership of Apollos, who has just recently departed. And some say they don't need any leader at all because they have Christ in their hearts. So Paul's authority has been tested. It has been put to the test by factions within this Corinthian congregation. And this church is one that thinks pretty highly of themselves. They think they're really smart. Paul says that they're puffed up. They are boasting. They are wise. And so he begins his letter with a theological message. It's the same message that called the church into existence in the first place. And this is the message he gives. He says, I'm going to show you just how limited your wisdom truly is. Because if you were to follow Jesus... The message of the cross is actually pretty foolish. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He is directly questioning What makes a person wise? Why is it that you in this church think you are wise? What is it that a person can lean on to make themselves know, to believe, to be confident that they know what is true and what is not true? What what kind of wisdom makes a person great? He says, hasn't God made the wisdom of the world look foolish in comparison to his own? Or is it because... We believe in the ways of the world that God's wisdom actually looks foolish. If the wisdom of the world was wise at all, if it had anything of true value to offer, wouldn't it have recognized the ways of God already? But it didn't. It did not recognize what God was trying to do. It was unable to see the truth that God was offering throughout time. So what does God do? He offers the truth through a new avenue. An avenue that to the world would seem foolish. 
he gives Jesus on a cross. He gives Jesus with a message that doesn't make sense and then has him die a criminal's death. To the world, the message of the cross is foolish because think about it. The cross is an instrument of torture and death. The cross was an instrument of humiliation. It took away all pride a person could have. And the cross was meant to remove power entirely. But God used an instrument for torture and death to conquer eternal death and give everlasting life. He used the instrument that was to remove pride, that was to remove honor, and through it gave Jesus the ultimate glory. He took the thing that was supposed to eliminate the power of a person and through the cross gave Jesus the ultimate power over everything. And those who follow are empowered because they believe. The thing that is supposed to take all power away is now used to give us power. I mean, that's a pretty foolish message if you think about it. What is more foolish than this? Jesus told us to love our enemies. He says to pray for those who persecute you. A message that says that you have to die to yourself to find yourself. It says to be great, you have to be the least. I mean, Paul pretty much nailed this one on the head. The cross is foolishness. The wisdom of God is foolishness. If your standard of wisdom comes from anywhere other than God. If your wisdom comes to you by way of news media, if it comes to you by way of social media, if it comes to you by way of politicians or experts in the law, then the wisdom of God will always seem foolish. You know, friends, something happened at some point in human history that put us on this path of placing our trust in the wisdom of the world. I don't know when it happened, but at some point we vaulted personal opinion to be the prerequisite for establishing truth. And when we did that, we established sources other than God as the dispensers of wisdom. We began relying on other people and other entities to give us facts so that we could form our own opinions and decide what is and isn't true. I mean, that was very much the case for the scribes and the Pharisees. That was even the case for the people who were asking questions in Corinth. The religious leaders that had studied the Bible, the religious leaders that had taught about God, who knew right from wrong, something was true because they believed it to be true. But when God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and, I, and the discernment of discerning I will thwart, he was saying that in Christ, I have given you a new standard from which all truth should be derived. No longer is it your personal opinions that can establish truth. If you take the truth of Christ seriously, it will contradict some of the things that you previously held as personal opinions. Isn't that the case in our own lives? How many times have we learned something to be true that the Bible teaches us or that God wants us to know and say, I don't know that I can believe that because it really comes up against something I've, my parents taught me or my church taught me or my family taught me or the world taught me that I've learned this thing from somewhere else. I've established it to be true in my life. But now I hear what Jesus says, and it makes me question everything. That seems foolish, Jesus, because it doesn't really jive with what I think.
How many times have we watched CNN or Fox News, MSNBC, or any other mainstream news channel and let a business that makes profit from our attention convince us of what is or is not true? How many times have we clicked on articles on Facebook that try to persuade us of something that is true or not true? And then we share that article with those that we are friends with so they will see this new truth too. I mean, Facebook is a company that makes money not from verifying the validity of an article, but makes money based on its ability to get that article clicked on more than any other website. Social media and even mainstream media, they govern what the content they produce is and what they disseminate, not based on what is most true or what is most valuable, but what is most likely to get our attention. Everyone's vying for our attention, are they not? But nobody's really trying to help us see what is true. Not if it's the wisdom based on what the world wants us to see. If it's better to be first than to be right in the age of the information. In a world where eyeballs equal dollar signs, imagine how much more important being most viewed is comparing to being right. So the question I have for us this morning is this. What does it mean for us to be saved by the foolishness of the cross? What does it mean for us to be saved by the foolishness of the cross? Because in salvation, we're not just talking about going to heaven, getting out of hell free card. We're talking about salvation that begins here on earth. When we are justified, we begin our eternal life. And so salvation is not something that is awaiting us, but something from which we already participate. And so if we are saved by the foolishness of the cross, that means that our wisdom needs to be one that is rooted in Jesus Christ. Not in the things that the world sees as wise. In a world we are inundated by a constant influx of information on our phones, our TVs, our radios. If everyone wants us to trust their opinions and make them our own, how do we become salt and light? How do we recognize the truth? Well, the first thing to remember is this. We are not the ultimate deciders of truth. The role of theology and therefore the role of the church is not to decide what is true. It is to discover what is already true and then to ask, what does this mean? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. We don't have to be the people that come up with or establish truth from fiction. God is the ultimate truth. And the ways of God are the ultimate ways of truth. So truth is not a matter of personal opinion. It is a realm of the divine. And so the second thing for us to remember is this. If what you're learning, believing, or teaching seems foolish, you might be on the right track. Jesus said the world would hate us because it first hated him. He did not come to bring peace, but a sword, which meant he didn't come so that everybody would sing kumbaya because everything was already perfect. No, he came to establish his kingdom over and above the world. To decentralize power from those who used it and abused it in ways that were not of the kingdom. But he did so in a way that just might not make sense if we are rooted in the wisdom other than in Christ. He didn't just say, 
Let's take up arms and defend God by killing other people. He didn't say let's belittle other people with our opinions so they will see how superior we are. Let's make sure the world knows that we are the most right and they are the most wrong. No, he said this. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he is hungry, give him something to eat. He said, it is the little children who will inherit the kingdom. So compare your opinions of truth to the foolishness of the cross and see if there are tensions there. Compare what you already believe to what God offers us. If the truth The algorithms on social media have drawn up for you, encourage you to see other human beings as less than you are, then that is not the wisdom of God. If your news outlets drum up stories to convince you of how another people group around the world are less deserving than we are of the same rights, then that is not the wisdom of God. If what you watch or listen to or encourages or or what you read, if it encourages you to hate, or to bring about violence, or bigotry, or degradation, or if it belittles any of your fellow human beings, then friends, that is not something that God counts as wisdom. That is the wisdom the world wants to convince you is true. So may we remember that those who are quickest to offer advice are often those who should probably heed it themselves. If truth comes easy and is slapped right in front of your faces, then it is probably something someone paid to have put there. It's probably something you should be wary of. Truth is something to be discovered. And every great discovery came with a journey and hard work. May we search diligently, not to decide what is true, but to discover what is true to discover the truths that were true before we even knew them to be true. And may we realize on this quest, on this journey, to to discover the wisdom of God, that we might end up looking a little foolish. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.